Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here this morning. And I know we've got some visitors this morning. We're glad to have you here as well. Um, I'm just going to ask, like, how many of you were at this uh, conference in Illinois over the weekend? I see just uh, just a couple of you. Okay, well, I was just had to ask. So, <laughs> well, it's great to have everybody here this morning. Good to see you all. <clears throat> well, how big is your God this morning? Pretty big? <laughs> how big? <laughs> Thank you. You know, you may not realize this, but uh, over the centuries, there's a lot of people that's had a lot of trouble believing who God is and what God said. I obviously say that somewhat facetiously. We all know that people have struggled with who God is and what has God said in his word, who is Jesus Christ. And if truth be told and we're honest, we've all struggled at times ourselves with, can we really believe God about this or about that truth that he's spoken to us through his word? You know, one of the great debates over time regards the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. Now, now personally, you know, growing up as a kid, I, I had somewhat of a general kind of a fear slash curiosity of God. I, I just kind of just naturally believed there, there's a God, and, and I had enough Christian voices in my life to basically believe that the God of the Bible was, was the one true God. And, and, and I, when I first heard the idea Jesus is God and man, I never personally really struggled with that. Maybe part of that was because I came to the faith fairly young at 14 and kind of had already heard that growing up as a kid, so I didn't really take much to acknowledge that. But you know, <laughs> that's one of those things a lot of people struggle with. Who is Jesus Christ? And over the centuries, different things have gone on, different movements, different, different voices have risen, different teachings have come. And, and either, either we go to one extreme or another, generally speaking, with this issue. Some have come along over time and thought, you know, if Jesus is God, then, then certainly he can't be human like you and I are human. He, it must be something different. It must be something else. And others have taken the other approach and thought, well, if he's truly man, then certainly he must have given up his deity to be a man. How could he be a man and still be God? And if you do rely on your own reasoning, it'll be very hard to accept these things. It'll be very hard to accept. How can one be, have the complete nature of God, 100% God, the complete nature of humanity, 100% humanity, and be one person? And if you try to figure that out, You'll drive yourself crazy. You can't figure it out. You have to trust that God, whose ways are above your ways, whose thoughts are above your thoughts, this is what he's spoken. This is his revelation to us, and thus it is true. And so anytime we come to the things of God and the things of Christ, we have to let God's revelation be the authority, and our human reason must bow to that. Otherwise, you will begin to create what we might call little God theologies. <laughs> little God theologies. Well, God, it can't be that. It can't be this. God certainly wouldn't do that. God certainly can't do this. Well, what has God said? That's the, that's the bottom line. What is, how has God revealed himself? If he says Jesus is God and man, then that's what it is. If God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
That's who he is. And we don't have to figure it out. We don't have to have a perfectly drawn schematic of it or something like that. You just have to trust God who is your father. Well, the Corinthians, who we're going back to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, 1 Corinthians 15 beginning with verse 45, if you want to begin to turn there, the Corinthians were wrestling with a little God theology, several you could say, but in the particular one we're dealing with this chapter was about bodily resurrection. We've been talking about this now for a few weeks because 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on bodily resurrection. No other place in Scripture deals with it in such depth and gives you so much uh, information and truth, so much revelation about it. And God calls us to believe these things. But the Corinthians were struggling. And you know why they were struggling? Because they were trying to figure it out in their own heads how, how it must be. And they were influenced by worldly wisdom, philosophy, reasoning. They were letting the voices of the world speak louder than the voice of God into their heart. And that's always going to bring trouble. When the world speaks louder, we hear it more loudly than God's word. And when it came to bodily resurrection, they were just thinking, how could that be? How could that be? Why would it be like that? Why would God do such a thing? And questioning, questioning. And Paul here, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49 this morning. He's continuing a sequence of thought. Basically, which he's saying, he's saying, because he's God and he can do what he wants to do. <laughs> That's the answer. If he wants to do it this way, it's the way he's going to do it. And you don't have to figure it out. It doesn't have to line up with how you think the world ought to be. You just got to go with what God has said. And let that be the voice of truth in your life. And so what he's done, when we pick up in verse 45 of 1 Corinthians, he's explained from prophecy and from experience and testimony that Jesus is the one who rose from the dead bodily, and therefore we're going to rise from the dead bodily. And he's explained all this. And here in the last few verses of the context we're coming into, he's compared it to how a seed that looks dead sprouts into new life, a plant, uh, 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 it is, that you're growing. He's explained how there's different kinds of flesh in the earth, and if God can create different kinds of flesh on the earth, then he certainly can make a resurrected body. And he's talked about the difference of glory between things on the earth and things in the heavens and how there's these glory, glorified objects in, in the cosmos of space. And it's like, if he can make those then it's no trouble for him to raise you from the dead. And he's been showing them a bigger God so they can trust what God has said. That's what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically in regards to the resurrection. And this is one of, I'm not going to say it's the most exciting passage. It's one of the most exciting passages in Scripture, perhaps, because it's just so awesome what God is going to do. It's just so awesome. Uh, This whole idea of resurrection, what God can and will do, is marvelous. And when we pick up the text, verses 45 through 49, what you see now, Paul specifically zero in on, is the reality that Jesus Christ is, in his words, the last Adam. The last Adam. And I love that title for Jesus Christ. Some, some places, are, there's some texts that give the idea of the second Adam. I think that's in Romans 5 we read. But the last Adam. And it speaks to new birth and redemption 
and it speaks to God as a recreator of who we are, and it speaks to so much truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he's doing and how the resurrection fits in this. So we're going to be looking at the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ, and Paul compares him with the first Adam, the man in the Garden of Eden that was made from the dust of the ground. And through this comparison, he's showing, again, uh, if God can do this, then he certainly can do this over here that's even more glorious. But he's also showing how Jesus Christ has won the victory, has made all these things possible, and therefore can make all things new which is exactly what the Scriptures declare. Let's read the passage this morning, beginning with verse 45, 1 Corinthians 15. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have been born, or excuse me, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And I read verse 50 there too, but we're going to stop with 49 this morning. But again, you see um, the idea of the, the last Adam there in verse 45. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And we're going to, as we go through this passage, we're just going to kind of look at Jesus Christ as, it's on your outline too, but... The last Adam regenerates. The last Adam redeems. The last Adam recreates. This is what he does. And we are called to believe it. And to let God be as big as he says he is. And to let God be the one who he says he is. So first of all, as we explore verse 45, we're talking about how the last Adam regenerates. And he compares again. He begins to compare Adam to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and we see, of course, that first of all, Adam became a living soul at his creation. That's what it says. The first man became a living being, a, a basically a living soul. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam became a living soul at his creation. <clears throat> so what Paul's doing here, he's returning to something he actually mentioned back in verse 22. And I'll read verse 22 of the passage as well. He had made a comparison before. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So he began to be, start to implant this thought in their minds about how Christ goes beyond Adam. Christ takes you beyond Adam. He brings you into fellowship with God. He puts you into his body. He gives you eternal life. And part of that becomes looking forward to Resurrect the dead. <clears throat> so he, can, he returns to this comparison to help give them the, just the thought again, God can do these things. God can do it. One thing we want to note right here is that in Paul's mind, there's no doubt that Adam was a historical person, that he really lived in a place that was really called the Garden of Eden. 
And the things you read in Genesis really happened. It's not mythology, it's not fairy tale, it's not fable, it's not whatever. It's history. It's history. And he shows that. And it also leans into the reality, the origin of sin. Sin is man's problem. And death by way of sin. That is our problem. It began with Adam. And Paul is banking on that foundation of truth as he makes his points here and in other places in Scripture. We read Romans 5 in our Scripture reading. We're not going to turn there right now, but Romans 5 is another place where Paul contrasts Adam with Christ. Adam brought sin into the world. Christ has brought a way of salvation for everyone who believes. And all the destruction Adam wrought can be undone in Jesus Christ. That is such a glorious truth. And here again, it's presented in 1 Corinthians 15 in somewhat different words with a different emphasis. We see here that we know from the record of Genesis, and it's alluded to in the passage, God made Adam from the dust of the ground. Right? And he breathed into him the breath of life. And there in Genesis, it says Adam became a living soul. He became a full human he, had, he, was a, he was created with a spiritual capacity. He was created with a physical capacity. He had spirit. He had body. And God breathed into him life, and he became a soul. Adam was spirit, soul, body, a full and true person. And, of course, Eve came from Adam, and they lived in a world untainted by sin and death, a world in which God looked at and said, everything is very good. And it shows you the state Adam and Eve were in, in a state of innocence and goodness. And you know the rest of the story from there. They partook of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, plunging themselves into sin and death, plunging the whole Adamic race into sin and death, and all the world as well. That's the story of Adam. That's the story of the first Adam. He became a living being. God can do that. So just keep in mind as we go through this passage, God gathered up some dust and whatever, however it looked, and, and there's Adam. And if you believe that, how can you have trouble with resurrection, right? <laughs> he can get dust, there's a person, then don't worry about your physical body. He can redeem it, he can resurrect it, not a problem. No big deal for God. But verse 45, the last part of that verse, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Christ became the one who could give spiritual life. Jesus Christ came into this world again to basically undo the damage of the first Adam and everything that's come from that. The first thing was necessary was his incarnation. He had to set aside the glory of being God and become a man, take on human flesh, take on human nature, but yet without sin. And he did that through the miraculous conception through Mary, the virgin birth, as it's usually called. The Son of God added the nature of humanity to his person. He became a man, lived as a man, grew as a man, and even died as a man all the while being fully God. <clears throat> and so after living a completely sinless life, he went to the cross, he died for the sins of the world, and that sacrifice was sufficient for all, and for all sins. 
And we understand he was buried. He rose again the third day. That's what this chapter is all about and how that applies to our lives and our future resurrection. He accomplished the work of redemption. That's what the last Adam did. He accomplished the work of redemption. He accomplished our salvation. He be giving spirit. Adam brought death. Christ brought life. That's what this passage is, is, is speaking to us today. And so only Christ can take you out of death in all its forms. We, ought, we usually talk about death in Scripture as meaning ultimately meaning separation. We've said these things before, but death, uh, in the Scriptures, there's three kinds of it. There's what we call spiritual death, which means that's how you come into the world. You come separated from God in fellowship. That wasn't Adam in his original state. He could, he, God walked in the garden with him. He could speak to God face to face. When he fell, he was exiled, and that fellowship was broken. And only Jesus Christ can restore that. But that's the first kind of death, spiritual death. We're separated from God. There's also what we know, physical death. That's one we know all too well in our daily our experience of life and so forth, and we know what that means. That's when your spirit and soul separate from your body. That's physical death, and only the body is left behind. And then the Bible tells us about one more. It's actually called the second death. That is separation from God in the everlasting lake of fire for eternity. You are forever separated in that place of punishment and darkness. That is what they call eternal death or the second death. So death is separation. <clears throat> when Adam ate of the knowledge of the tree, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather, he was ripped from God's fellowship. That's what he did to himself. It's only the last Adam that can bring us back. So God saves us. He also saves us in a threefold manner. He brings salvation. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he died for you personally, and you make that decision, that he died for your sins, and that's the way forgiveness comes. That's the way you're saved. You trust in him that he died for you, was buried, and he rose again. When you make that choice, the Holy Spirit of God comes, and you are completely transformed. The Holy Spirit of God comes and lives within you, seals you, begins to do a work in you. But in that moment, you're sealed and you are saved from the penalty of sin. And that is beyond any question. You're saved from the penalty of sin. But that's not all. God also wants to continue to do a work in your life. And the Holy Spirit that now resides in you continues to work to transform you and to give you victory over sin in your life. That's the idea of being saved from the power of sin. We use the word sanctification usually when we talk about that idea. The Holy Spirit can save you from the power of sin as you walk after the Spirit in your daily life, as you walk the, the walk with God of faith. But that's still not all. Because God will also, as Paul's explaining in this very passage... He will save you from the very presence of sin. And the, that takes the form of the resurrection. There's coming a day when you and I will, will hear the voice of the Lord. And whether we live or we're dead and in the grave, our bodies will be transformed. We understand that to be happening at the rapture. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
And we're not going to turn to those passages right now. That's the when. But that's, that's this last phase of salvation. God is going to take your... He's going to take the dust that's left from you after you go back to dust. And he's going to gather it and, and a new resurrected body. No less miraculous than when he brought Adam into existence. But see, Jesus gives life in all these different phases. He saves us from all the, the penalty of sin, which is death, and all those separations. He brings us back to God. He restores it all. He redeems it all. And he regenerates us. That's kind of our key word as we were talking about this word. The last Adam regenerates. God made Adam from the dust and breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living being. That was the day he was born. And then when we're born, though, now we, we are a part of what Adam was. We come from him, but we inherit the sin along with him. We inherit his sinful nature. We come into the world with a bent towards sin, a tendency towards sin. We come into this world destined to physically die because of that, as a matter of fact. So what does Jesus Christ do? When you trust him and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, spiritual life is breathed into you. You become regenerated, which means born again. Now you're no longer just born of Adam. You're essentially born after the Spirit, born after Jesus Christ, born into the family of God. You are something new now but yet you still carry some of the old with you. You still have a little that Adamic nature hanging around. You still have a body that came from Adam that's destined to die. But what this passage assures us is God's going to take care of that too one day. In the moment of salvation, he takes care of the penalty of sin. You're destined to be with him forever. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new position in Christ. And the, these other, what he's going to do at the resurrection, that's going to happen in the future. But that will complete the whole process that God has in mind. You know, every spring, the kids, they, they like to go out and they like to hunt for the monarch caterpillars. Anybody else do this? You go out and you, you find milkweed around the house, around the property, whatever. And uh, I don't know, sometime around May, probably, I think up here, <clears throat> maybe it's a little before that, but if you're, if you're, you can go around the milkweed and you start seeing the little monarch caterpillars crawling around. They're black, yellow striped, right? And so the kids like to try to collect those. They bring in some milkweed. We put them in this netted container, and we just kind of watch them eat for a while. They eat for a couple of weeks after they're hatched from the egg, and then they get bigger and they get bigger and they keep growing, and then after a while, they begin to climb up whatever they're in. They climb up the milkweed if they're outside, but they climb up the netted structure. They go up to the top of it, and they form a chrysalis. And, and, and it's really weird to watch because it actually forms inside of them, and they, the caterpillar kind of sheds off of it. It's like they zip for the caterpillar skin aside, and now there's this green, hardened, shell-like structure. It's not super hard, but it's certainly harder than caterpillar skin. And then that thing just sits dormant for a couple of weeks. It kind of looks dead, almost. It looks like nothing's going on. But we know there's something very dramatically happening inside. There's a metamorphosis, as we call it. There's a transformation happening. And after about two weeks in there, out comes the monarch butterfly, which looks hardly anything like the old caterpillar. It doesn't look like the chrysalis either. It looks like something totally new. It, it almost looks like a completely different creature, a completely new creature, right? And it comes out, 
And it has wings, and it has its antennae, and it's a different body structure, and it looks, and you kind of marvel, like, how did that come from that? And we understand the science behind it today. You know, we know that DNA has all of that in. It's part of the whole cycle God had created for that creature. But yet, they're still in that a picture, I think, of the kind of things we're talking about here this morning. There's even a picture in my mind of sort of a regeneration. The caterpillar born from the egg crawls around, eats, eats the milkweed, and uh, you know, basically lives to eat. <laughs> and that's its life. And then it goes into the chrysalis, and it comes out of the chrysalis, and it's almost like it's been born again. It's something new. Now it's going to fly. Now it graces the world with its beauty, and it migrates south, right? See, we, the butterfly's got the right idea. You go south in the winter. <laughs> anyway, but that's a kind of a picture. We know that it's just an analogy, but it is a picture of what God does in our life. We become something new at salvation, and then that begins to flesh out in our lives as we go on. And the culmination is when we're resurrected, and even the body follows that regeneration process. The body, as it were, is regenerated into a new, glorious, spiritual body. And that's what Paul's explaining. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, we were born of the first Adam. When you get saved, now you're born of the second Adam, the last Adam. Jesus Christ is the Adam of the regenerated human race. And that's what you become part of when you trust Christ as your Savior. Let's look on at verses 46 through 48, where he just makes the application a little more strong. He's compared, he, does, he makes some comparisons here. And I'm just going to say here, the last Adam redeems. The last Adam redeems. And we've talked about what that word means before, but it basically means to buy back. It's kind of like reclaiming something for new use or better use. And the idea is he's, he's redeemed our souls through salvation, but he's also going to redeem our bodies as part of salvation. And Paul in Romans 8 says, we wait for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our bodies. That, that's the last part of this process that God has in mind. So let's look at verses 46 through 48 again. It says, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Paul's basically saying, God's going to do the same work in you that he did in Jesus Christ. And he just shows the contrast, though, again, between the first Adam and the last Adam. These are the two prototypes of the human race. You're born of the first Adam, so you come into this world with a body that certainly is suited for life on the earth. But something has gone horribly wrong in the past with sin and death, and so we come in and we're destined to die, and we grow old and we suffer all the things of this world through this body. There's the man of the dust. And we know, just like Adam, he, he told Adam in Genesis chapter 3, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. And that's what this body, what, that's its process. 
as the Lord tarries, that's what will happen to each of us. But he contrasts that with Jesus Christ, who is now the heavenly prototype, the spiritual prototype. When you're born of Christ, Paul's saying you get to look forward to a body that is suited for the heavens, suited for eternal life with God in the presence of God's glory. You are suited for spiritual realities. And that's the change that will happen at the resurrection. So the first point again, the Adamic body is fit only for this world. That's the natural body. That's the earthly body. It's just, it's fit for this world. But we know this world, because of sin, uh, everything's gone horribly wrong. Now, one of the things we want to point out here in this passage as we're reading is, well, one of the things the Corinthians were maybe struggling with, we're not sure, but we know they, they lived in a culture that had been heavily influenced by Greek philosophers. And one such philosopher in their past was named Plato. You've probably heard that name before, right? Plato is considered a great Greek mind from around three to 400 B.C. And he had taught that the greater reality of existence is sort of a, a spiritual reality or an ideal reality, kind of a mind-over-matter type thinking, that, that the physical world was simply an illustration of the spiritual or ideal world, okay? It's that kind of thinking. That thinking even pervades some of our culture today in some of the different movements and thoughts out there. And so that may have been what the Corinthians were influenced by because they, they had this desire to know this earthly wisdom and philosophy and these things being taught. And they grew up, I mean, they were talking about ancient Greece. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, all these people people quote today and read today. Those that came, it was their world, basically. So it's some wonder if they weren't buying into Platoism. And they were thinking that they were trying to bring that and marry it to the truth of God's word that they've been taught, creating a mixture that becomes nonsense and makes a little God, that kind of a thing again, bringing reason to speak over revelation. They, were, they may have been buying into that and believing that it didn't make sense for this physical body to be resurrected and reused because the spiritual is just greater reality. Why would you drag the physical along with it? That, that's to be shed. Shed that like the like the monarch sheds the caterpillar skin. Like leave it behind. We don't have any more use for it. But that's not how God has ordained things. God created both spiritual and physical worlds. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ created it all. All things, whether seen or unseen, visible or, or invisible or visible. Colossians says, all things made by Him, through Him, for Him. He made it all. But there is an unseen world. There's a seen world. There's a physical world. There's a spiritual world. God has a purpose for both. One is not inherently evil and one's inherently good. No, it's all part of God's good creation. And he's restoring all of that, both the physical and the spiritual capacities and realities. And in the resurrected body, what's going to happen is they're just integrated in much more harmony than ever before. And what happens is when you're resurrected, God does apparently take the dust from, which, from what you've turned into and he creates something new from it. But what he creates, as we've read in the passage before, is incorruptible, it's glorious, it's spiritual. It's a physical body 
with a whole new set of capacities and attributes. It now has spiritual capacities and attributes. And as we've said, it won't be limited by just physical attributes. You can only run so fast. You can only move so fast. You can only go so far. You're going to wear out. You're going to get tired. You're going to need to eat again. Those are your current attributes. But those apparently will not be part of your resurrected body. The spirit will be in the driver's seat. And wherever your spirit wants to go, the physical body that Christ gives you in resurrection, go with it. Okay? So it's a new body with, with physical, or excuse me, spiritual attributes, but there's still a physical component to it. it br- he just brings it into a greater harmony. And if, again, as we've said before, it's just like Jesus Christ when he rose from the dead. He had a body you could touch, a body that could eat. He even retained his scars, I think, as part of God's plan for him. That was a memorial through all eternity. But he was by no means limited to that body as he had chose to be limited before, before his resurrection. Now he could appear, disappear, ascend into heaven, and all these different things, as we've mentioned, that's how our body is going to be. It's going to be a physical body, no longer tainted by sin and death, It'll be of a different consistency, but it'll still have a physical flesh to it, but it'll have spiritual attributes and capacities, and that's hard for us to imagine. And again, what do we start to do? Well, that doesn't make sense. Let me, let me, let me give God a try. Let me do it. Let me come up with the idea. Let me explain it this way and make God little. Oh, God can't do it. No. Yes, he can. He can do these things. <clears throat> so Adam, he gives us a body. We were given a body through Adam fitted for this world. That's the body, the natural body, the body that comes from dust, and the body that will return to dust. But Jesus Christ gives us a different kind of body in the resurrection, a heavenly body, a spiritual body, as he's emphasizing here. Christ provides a spiritual body fitted for eternity. I've alluded to this before. Revelation 21.4, a special verse to me statement about the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 21.4 says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You better believe they're true and faithful. Jesus Christ makes all things new as the last Adam. <clears throat> as I kind of ponder about these things, and I don't, you know, we're never going to fully appreciate the resurrection body till we have it and we can fully understand it at that time but it it, again it just makes me think of some things in in scripture one of the sort of an analogy perhaps that comes to mind is when Jesus was on the earth and his very first recorded public miracle was turning water into wine right water into wine he goes to the wedding at Cana you know Jesus didn't say no to a good party so neither should we <laughs> he goes to a party goes to probably probably even had family and everything Canaan near the Sea of Galilee on the Sea of Galilee they have a party he goes it's a wedding obviously it's a wedding after a wedding party and uh, crisis erupts they run out of wine <laughs> right it's a crisis now they're panicking in the back room apparently and, uh, and Mary of all people hatches a plan and says, you know what? I think I know a guy. <laughs> so Mary brings, gets Jesus' attention and, you know, comes to him and says, you know, hey, they've run out of wine and, and 
And uh, Jesus, always loved his response is, what does he say, woman? <laughs> woman? Kind of like, what's this got to do with me? It's not, my, it's not yet my time. <clears throat> and, uh, but, he, but, he, but he does. He's like, you know what, Mom, I'll do it for you. So he goes over to where, what do they got? They got barrels of water. They run out of wine, they've got water. Now, water is water. It's a liquid, H2O, right? We all know water, we appreciate water. It has its own attributes, its own characteristics, its own nature, right? Its freezing point, its, t- its boiling point, all these things built into its substance, its physical reality. And Jesus went to the, to the water, they filled up the water parts, and he went to the water. And we don't, I don't remember if it says what he prayed or if he prayed, but it says the water became wine. Now look, wine is a liquid, and it has a component of water, you know, but it's completely different. It has different attributes. It's of a different nature. You, you know, you have, to, you have to take grapes through a fermentation process to have wine. You know, it, it's, a, it's a different substance altogether. But in that moment, he took something that was and made something new in that moment, right? Water became wine. No big deal for God, but everybody at the party would have thought it was a big deal. And not only was it wine, it was like the best tasting wine they ever had before, right? So like, you know, I don't know, maybe get to heaven, like, Jesus, could I have a Coke? You know, and like, oh, that's the best Coke I've ever had. I don't know. But anyway, I hope so. (laughs) But God can do that. And that's just to me like a little analogy. Look, he can take the dust. If he can make Adam from dust, he can gather your dust back up and make something completely new and different. Still retain your identity, still retain continuity from your old body, but it will be a new body beyond the limitations of our current body. So far beyond. That kind of leads us to the last point I want to make, that the last Adam recreates. He recreates. First of all, he doesn't throw our body away. He wants to redeem it just along with the rest of us. He wants to redeem you, spirit, soul, and body. And that's how he completes it at the resurrection. But he recreates. And that really speaks to the whole passage. He can take the broken, the rundown, and he can take it and he can make it into something new. And again, that's what he does in the resurrection. Verse 49 says, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. All members of the human race come into this world, they bear the image of Adam. They bear the image of Adam. Now we know in the beginning when God was creating man, he said, let us make man in our own image. And he made Adam and Eve during you know, the, the sixth day of creation. And they were, made, they were created in his image. And, and that just says so much. But it's what separates us from any other created creature on this earth. We were given relational, moral, spiritual capacities. We became living, you know, they became living beings. They had creative and intellectual capacities. They were intended to live in relationship, intended to have dominion over the world. They were special. The human race is special in God's eyes, made in his image. And you know what? The image of God remains. That's why you're not supposed to curse people. James says you don't curse people who are made in the similitude of God, the image of God. 
Paul even leans into that in 1 Corinthians 11 and talks about how man is still made in the image of God. It's still that those capacities are there, those attributes God gave us in his image in those ways. We are like him in those ways. We're not like him in all ways, but we're like him in those ways. But again, we still, we still bear it, but it's all horribly tainted with sin and death. And so it's a very messed up image of God. And so one of the things that the last Adam is doing is restoring the image of God. But even in a greater way, it would seem. Because if he takes you beyond just the life here and takes you on into more of that spiritual reality. He takes us beyond what Adam even was in the Garden of Eden, untainted with sin. He takes us beyond all those things. So we come into this world, we bear the image of Adam, the fallen one. We possess a sin nature. We have corrupted hearts and will physically die if the Lord tarries. We are like him. We're fitted to live in this world, but we're fallen. That was what it means to bear the image of the man of dust, the first Adam. But as it says here, we will also, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's talking about Jesus Christ. All the redeemed now bear the image of Christ. And I know it says shall be, so let me explain. Because it's, we do already start bearing the image of Christ now. He's just talking about the day it's completed and all of you, spirit, soul, and body bear the image of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, well, the moment of salvation, your identity changes. The spirit of the living God lives in you. You're, You're taken out of Adam and put into Jesus Christ in identity and in position. And therefore, that's supposed to be coming out in our daily lives. Ephesians 3, 23 and 24, they say, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness, that's part of the image of Christ. That's being like him. And that's what image means. You're like him. You look like, you look like him a little bit. <laughs> you got his eyes. No. <clears throat> you got his virtue. You got his character. I see a little bit of that holiness in you. Because it's him living through you in the Christian life. And that's what God's doing. He's focusing on the inner man right now, forming Christ in you, that it comes out through your your life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just just as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, the Holy Spirit's doing a work in you right now. He's doing the work of the last Adam in you right now. There's there's transformation happening, ongoing transformation. You become more and more and more like Jesus Christ as you grow in your Christian life, you grow in your walk with God, you grow in your faith, you trust God, you believe His truth. He forms Christ in you. These verses are talking about the inner man. The Lord is recreating us from the inside out. And he will finish it at the resurrection. And your body will catch up to the rest of you, so to speak. And all of you will have been made new 
in the image of Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God. It's just even more than what Adam had. And so what does God want today then? What do we do with a passage like this? First of all, I hope you believe it and rest in the reality of resurrection because it gives you another level of hope, another layer of hope and joy and contentment because we know these bodies run down. They have ailments. They're frail and feeble, and they slow us down in different ways. And as you know the experience, and this passage says, but that doesn't have to stop you. That doesn't have to ruin your life or affect your Christian walk. You can still trust God. He's going to use you where you are on the journey and in the process. And you have this to look forward to. We all have this to look forward to. It assures us that he has the victory over sin and death. And these kinds of truth are meant to form in our heart and mind a picture of the living God, a big and awesome God that you want to believe and walk with every day. And that transforms your Christian life. And you'll go out excited to tell others about the last Adam and all he did. Bill Morgan writes, on a wall near the main entrance to the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, there's a portrait with the following inscription. James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. No literal portrait of Jesus exists either, but the likeness of the Son who makes us free can be seen in the lives of his true followers. That's what God's doing today by his grace. In the Garden of Eden, Adam fell into sin. In a garden in Jerusalem, Christ arose from the dead. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the vehicle by which Adam sinned. The tree of Calvary was the vehicle by which Christ conquered sin. Adam in the garden sought to be like God. But Christ was God who became a man. Adam brought thorns and thistles into this world. Christ bore a crown of thorns at the cross. Adam hid from God on the day he sinned. Christ brings people into fellowship with God once again. Adam needed a blood sacrifice to cover his sin. Christ came and provided the once-for-all sacrifice for all sins. Adam was to have dominion over the world. But Christ will reign over heaven and earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Because of Adam, we will die if the Lord tarries. But because of the last Adam, we will be resurrected. It's only the last Adam that can undo the consequences of sin and death that the first Adam brought into this world. And and he's the reason we're here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your passage of truth to our hearts, Lord. May it be absorbed by our hearts and believed, and may we just trust in you, the living and awesome God. Not let ideologies and thoughts of the world diminish you in our minds and hearts, Father, to diminish our faith in you. 
May instead, may our minds continue to be renewed by your truth. May we become more and more like Jesus Christ, your son, as we now also are your sons and daughters through him. Father, we just pray this passage continues to work in our hearts, that your spirit continues to work in our hearts as we seek to live this out. We praise you for the hope of resurrection, Lord. You've even defeated death. And that's just an amazing thought. We just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.